Well, welcome and um, welcome to those who are listening today on podcast and those who are joining us as well on live stream. Mark my words, we're uh, starting at chapter 10 today. And uh, as I often tell you, encourage you, please bring your Bibles along on a Sunday morning. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a great conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, the one who is the Christ figure in that story. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was just a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, never, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. On occasions, I feel that we as followers of Jesus have created a safe Jesus. We have domesticated Jesus, the one that the Bible refers to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we have reimagined him as a pet kitten, a Jesus who is safe. What do I mean by that? Well, we love quoting his words, don't we? Especially when he says such things as, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amazing words. And we quite rightly love such scriptures because they make us feel very safe and snug and we are very happy with them and very content perhaps. They're the spiritual equivalent of a cup of Horlicks on a cold winter's night. And we often use such verses as fridge magnets or as framed embroidery on our dining room walls. And yet when you read through the gospel accounts for most of the time we encounter a Jesus who wasn't trying to make people comfortable with him. In this respect, Jesus was anything but safe. In fact, he was actually a bit scary, a bit radical, a bit of a revolutionary. To tell you the truth, his words don't always make me feel safe and snug. His words perturb me, disturb me, challenge my mediocrity, defy my apathy, upset the apple cart of my complacency. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> I don't think so. And this morning we are looking at the first half of uh, Mark chapter 10 and we're encountering two very challenging subjects indeed. The first subject is divorce and remarriage and the second is money, subjects which have caused probably more heat than light over the last 2,000 years. They are very, very difficult challenges and uh, passages to understand. So let's do our best anyway, shall we? The chapter starts with the Pharisees attempting to trip Jesus up by asking him what his views were on divorce. Now, this was the big question in Jesus' day. It was a question that all of the religious leaders spoke about, and they would spend days debating this. There were hugely divergent reasons over why a man could divorce his wife. The Old, Old Testament law uh, 
taught that a man could divorce his wife who, and I quote, becomes displeasing to him. And because, and I quote again, he finds something indecent in her. Those two quotes are taken from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And that verse was interpreted in very, very different ways by the rabbis of the day. Leading Rabbi Shammai, who was a very much of a conservative, he interpreted that verse to say that a man was permitted to divorce his wife for a serious matrimonial uh, offense, such as her committing adultery. It wasn't a command to divorce her, but it was a concession. It was permitted. There was another rabbi called Rabbi Hillel. On the other hand, and quite different to Rabbi Shammai, he wasn't a conservative. In fact, he was a liberal. And he interpreted the law quite differently. And he taught that this phrase, becomes displeasing to him, could mean a range of things. For example, if his wife was seen in public with her head uncovered, or if she talked with other men in the street, even if she became rather plain looking compared to a younger model. She got a boil on her nose, or hair turned gray or put on a few pounds or burned the toast. All of those things would be deemed as displeasing to her husband. And in Jewish society, Jewish society was in effect split between these two views of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, but Jesus wanted to talk about marriage. They wanted to focus on the law of Moses, but Jesus went back to creation and spoke of God's original intention that it was for one man and one woman to be joined in marriage for life. Now, in practice, we know that, that God's ideal isn't always fulfilled on earth. God's will isn't always done on earth. We don't live in a perfect or ideal world. And sometimes people get divorced because one partner has an affair and leaves the family home. Or because of unreasonable behavior such as domestic violence, which can take the form of emotional as well as physical abuse. And both are absolutely devastating. Just as the rabbis in Jesus' day had divergent views, today in society, probably in this room this morning, we also have divergent views. In fact, this whole area can be a little bit of a minefield. And the reason is that we are separated from the pages of Scripture by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. And a lot of known is known about the customs and culture of that time, but there are gaps in our understanding. So please, a word from your pastor. Please, 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 don't jump in where angels fear to tread on this subject. I advocate humility. Humility, even if you think that you know what you believe and you hold that, that view tightly. And please, 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 do not be one of those people who throws around Bible texts as if they're moral hand grenades. Firstly, be aware that you might not actually be right in your views. And secondly, be aware that your dogmatism on a subject like this might actually do harm, might do harm to someone else, to that brother or sister in Christ. 
an old friend of mine at uh, Bible College in the mid-80s, was so dogmatic on all of these kind of subjects, and he was so dogmatic on divorce and remarriage and all sorts of other ethical dilemmas. He knew what he believed. He could quote chapter and verse on it. And at the college lectures, he was particularly hard-nosed and uncompromising. And then he left college and became a pastor. And as a pastor, he met real people in real-life situations with real problems that didn't always have an easy solution. And I remember him telling me some years later that his slick answers in the college class had been replaced with more compassion and more empathy when he encountered the heartbreaking and difficult pastoral situations that he sometimes encountered. When I served as a young pastor in Cardiff, I remember my senior pastor, Mike Sherwood, saying to me that in all the confusion that surrounds relationships in contemporary society, that he told me that he would always prefer to make a decision for grace and for mercy and for forgiveness and for compassion, which, of course, might raise some other questions, but I understood his heart. I'm going to move on quickly, if you, don't, if, you, if you don't mind. Just wanted to not ignore that. That is a really difficult passage at the beginning of our chapter or half a chapter today. And I want us to move on to the second part, which I really want to concentrate our time this morning on, which is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And this is also a passage which I believe has been terribly misunderstood uh, by Christians over the years. So if you've got your Bibles, I'll put the words on screen as well. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With this man, uh, with with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. For me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
Would someone else like to take over from now, please? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have so many questions from that reading. Why did Jesus ask the man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Was Jesus somehow suggesting that he wasn't one with God? Enjoy that one in your life groups this week. What about the man speaking about inheriting eternal life? Why did G Jesus speak to that man who had asked him that question, then point him in the direction of the commandments? And besides, what did the man mean by eternal life? Was he talking about sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp? Or did he have something else in mind? Why did Jesus tell him to sell everything he had to follow him? Is that really the qualification to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus in this world? What did Jesus mean when he said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God? And does that mean that all of us here in this room today who are in the 10% richest people on the planet, that we are unable to enter the kingdom of God. My word, how long have you got this morning? <laughs> Let's try to walk through this together and see what kind of understanding that we can get for this extremely difficult passage. But first of all, this man comes up and says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you had not heard this story before, this is the very first time that you'd heard this story and you'd heard this man asking Jesus that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you imagine would come next? If you didn't know what did come next, imagine you were hearing this for the first time. What do you think would come next? I would have anticipated that Jesus would have said to him something like, believe in me and you will be saved. Yeah? Because that's what Paul did. Remember Paul, when he met the Philippian jailer, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, must, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we can't put Jesus in a box. And he always surprises us. And Jesus here directs this man to the Ten Commandments. I certainly wouldn't have seen that one coming myself. In verse 19, he says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. In fact, the, what was being quoted there was commandments of the Ten Commandments, commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And the man replies, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, what's really interesting here that Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't say to this guy, no, you haven't. You only think you have. No one can keep the commandments completely. Now, if this guy had come up to me, I would have quoted Romans chapter 3 at him. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus' answer troubles me. It troubles me because the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer that Jesus gives essentially is, <laughs> keep the commandments. That is not your typical evangelical answer. And if Jesus had been an alien pastor, he probably would be defrocked by now. He would have been branded a heretic. 
Now, that causes me to think that there is something else going on in this passage that we need to unpack and unpick. Verse 20, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus didn't challenge that comment. Mark tells us in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Ouch. I'm sure he didn't see that one coming. We are then told that this man became sad because he had great wealth. Let's just stop there for a moment and think about this. This is a good guy. He lived a good and an upright life. He kept the commandments. He obeyed the rules. But Jesus said, there's just one more thing I want you to do. I want you to give it all away. Oh, I wish we had time. I'd love to stop there for 10 minutes and get you into all little groups and just discuss what you think was going on here. This isn't comfortable, is it? It doesn't leave me with a feeling of contentment where I'm relaxed and snug and secure anymore. This is quite confrontational. And then Jesus continues by saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, blimey. If that's true, that's me out. That's you out as well. So what is going on here? You see, you've heard me say many, many times before that we always need to remember the context. And I would, I would argue that our biggest fault when we read the Bible is that we, as 21st century people, that we are preoccupied with our 21st century questions. And we are asking questions of this passage which are actually different to the ones that they were addressing. This guy asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is understood by Christians today in a way which is alien to what that guy originally meant. You see the man saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was not asking Jesus, how do I get to heaven after I die? The phrase or the words eternal life in the original Greek is literally life of the ages. Now, that might not mean a whole load to you this morning, but let me try to explain. Most Jews were looking forward and longed for the coming of the kingdom of God, when God's will would be done and it's a new age and everything would be free of corruption and decay and evil and fear and death. And heaven and earth would be joined together and God and his children would always be together. And no longer would they, as Jewish people, live in servitude and enslavement to other nations who had come in. God would rule the world, his world, with justice and mercy. And you see, through Jesus and his ministry, he taught, what was the central message of Jesus? Come on, you know this. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. That was central. And Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was near. And when this man, who had seen Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead, he believed that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah who was to come. The one who was bringing in, ushering this new age, this messianic age. And what he had seen, he believed to be a taster of what is yet to come. God's kingdom touching earth. 
And therefore, the man's question of what must I do to inherit eternal life isn't what we make that question to be in the 21st century about, you know, heaven after you die. But he, he was actually asking Jesus how the benefits of that age to come, the messianic age, this age of prosperity where the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, how can that be truly experienced now in his life? And how could he be a part of that kingdom? Stick with me a couple of moments, please. And this will hopefully make sense to you. In response to his question, Jesus then points him at, in the direction of the commandments only to show him that the commandments would never be enough for someone who is a citizen in his, in his kingdom. Basically, what Jesus was saying to him was this. If you want to experience the life of my kingdom, then you need to let go of all your old values because the values of my kingdom are far beyond simply not stealing, not murdering, not committing adultery. And when we come, there's a great verse actually in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it not only is a key verse which ha helps us unlock that sermon of Jesus, but it also helps us unlock so much of what we find Jesus teaching about the kingdom. The verse is this. If you've got your Bibles there, Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Now, this was an incredibly controversial thing for Jesus to say. Because everybody everywhere at that time knew that the Pharisees, they were paragons of virtue. They were regarded as the most holy people on planet Earth. And what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 5, he provides a few examples, I think it's six examples in all, of what the Pharisees' righteousness actually looked like. And then he compares the Pharisees' righteous, righteousness with what the righteousness of God's kingdom was like. On one occasion, for example, uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, that was what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were living to in, in Jesus' day. They were abiding by the Old Testament law. You have heard that it said, do not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, he's saying, these are your standards. But these are the standards of my kingdom. And then there are other examples that Jesus gives. You say, don't commit murder. Good, that's in the Ten Commandments. But what I say, don't even get angry with another person. You say, love your friends. Yes, that's great, love your friends, but also love your enemies. You say, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say, turn the other cheek. You see, what's happening here is that the religious leaders kept the law, the Ten Commandments, perfectly on the outside. 
They didn't commit adultery. They didn't murder anyone. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They didn't steal. But Jesus is teaching that those who are citizens of his kingdom have values and principles that far exceed simply not doing something, as the Pharisees were saying. The Pharisees said, well, we've kept the Ten Commandments. And Jesus was saying to them, big deal. <laughs> big deal. That's nothing. The standards of my kingdom are so much higher. So if you think that you can be a part of my kingdom simply because you haven't murdered anyone or you haven't committed adultery, think again. And he says to this rich young official, you are living for wealth and for money. That is your God. You are devoted to your possessions. And yet at the same time, you're wanting to talk to me about becoming a part of my kingdom. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your old values and want the benefits of my new world. There's a paradox here. You've probably seen it. And the paradox is this. That we, and we teach this often, that we are saved by God's grace. Not by anything we do. Not by keeping the commandments. Not by tithing. Not by works of the law. It is by God's grace alone which we receive by faith. And yet Jesus calls us to standards that exceed the Ten Commandments from those who are his citizens. I told you that Jesus was a radical. A radical, a revolutionary. No wonder C.S. Lewis wrote in that book, he's not safe, you know. <laughs> Incidentally, let me answer a question that some of you might be asking. And that question is, should therefore all disciples of Jesus at all ages give all of our possessions away? Is that the standard for everyone? And the answer to that is no. In Luke chapter 8, I just sort of sense a sigh of relief there. Just sort of wave, coming waves across the uh, congregation. In Luke chapter 8 verse uh, 3, we read that uh, wealthy women contributed to support Jesus and the disciples. The fact that they had wealth and were able to contribute meant quite obviously they'd not given it all away prior to that. In Luke chapter 19, we are told of Zacchaeus, who gave half his wealth to the poor, uh, and if he had cheated anyone of their taxes, he promised to pay them four <coughs> times as much. Wonderfully generous of Zacchaeus, but it wasn't everything. Uh, and yet Jesus said that salvation has come to this house today. However, however, Jesus taught that being a part of his kingdom, knowing his salvation, affects everything. Everything. Every aspect of our life, it affects, including our pockets. That when a person becomes a part of that kingdom of, that Jesus was speaking about, it changes that person's attitude to other people and also to their priorities. We see people as those for whom Christ has died. We learn to become more forgiving as Jesus was. We use our wealth for eternal things, for his kingdom's causes. We choose to turn the other cheek instead of seeking revenge. Now, for this guy, money was his Achilles heel. And it was his God. And it would always, always, always get in the way of him 
following Jesus. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, different people, it's very interesting this actually, down through the ages they've made uh, different suggestions as to what this might mean. Um, someone said that the eye of a needle was actually the name of a gateway in the city wall of Jerusalem and that Jesus used this because it was very difficult for a rider on top of a camel to get through that gateway. And that's an ingenious explanation, but wrong. There's no archaeological evidence whatsoever for that. Basically, someone made up the idea. Another idea, and I think this has got much in its favor, is that the word should not be, camel, uh, it should not be a camel going through an eye of a needle, but it should be the word rope. Because in the Greek... The, does that look like someone you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying who. Um, camel, camelos is, is, is the Greek word there. But cable or rope is camelos. And as you can see there, there is just one letter difference between the, the words of camel and rope. And some people believe that in the copying of the Bible that um, a mistake was made and therefore camel was put instead of the original call. I think that that's feasible, to tell you the truth. However, it doesn't make one iota of a difference, not one iota of a difference, as to what Jesus was talking about. Whether it was a camel going through the eye of a needle or a rope going through the eye of a needle, the point is exactly the same. And then in verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, <laughs> they pinched my question actually, and probably yours too. Who then can be saved? You see, the life that God calls us all to, a kingdom life, the life of the ages, the life of eternity, is humanly impossible. We could never live up to it. We could never keep it up. It would break us if we tried to do that in our own strength. But the good news is that we aren't required to live this kingdom life in our own strength. But God promises His Spirit to live within us, as Tim quoted to us earlier on. After Peter heard what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, it had to be Peter, didn't it? He then spoke up and he said, we have left everything to follow you. And then Jesus responded by reminding Peter that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words... And I want to encourage you this morning. In other words, you will never lose out. King Jesus calls us to wholeheartedly live for his kingdom purposes in the world. In one sense, we might lose out. But the Lord's got all of eternity to make it up to us. Having said that, I think that he's already given us more than we could ever repay. I've known people to lose out in their careers because they would not compromise their integrity in the workplace. They refuse to do those shady deals 
or bend the rules ordered by their superiors, and they lost out. I've known some people lose out on the possibility of marriage because they chose not to sleep with potential suitors. I've known some to lose out through uh, leaving lucrative professions in order to serve Jesus on some foreign mission field or in small struggling pastorates. I've known some to lose out through being excluded from their families for their trust in Jesus. Recently, I spoke to a young Jehovah's Witness who was ostracized by her family when she came to Christ. So painful, so painful. Many other faiths actually host a funeral service for a family member who turns from their religion to Jesus. I've known others lose friends because the character of their lives stood out as a testimony of righteousness which challenged the godless ways of their friends, even without them saying a word. I've known some who have paid the ultimate price and have lost their lives in the course of obeying uh, Jesus to reach out to other parts of the world. The writer to Hebrews says of them that the world was not worthy of them. And I want to encourage you this morning. God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. He has all of eternity to make it up for you. If you think that you are losing out because of the decisions you are making for him and his kingdom in this world. And Jesus invites us all. He invites us all to be a part of that kingdom. It's a revolution. It's a revolution of grace. And that is the challenge, I believe, for the rich young ruler. And that is our challenge today. Nothing has changed. For the rich young ruler, that challenge was that he loved wealth more than he could ever love God. And he needed to deal with that. And he needed to prioritize in his life. That was his challenge. But it might not necessarily be you a challenge. The expert in the law in Luke chapter 10, the challenge was to act as a good neighbor to his enemies as well, to his, as, as, well as his friends. For the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the challenge was to stop having adulterous relationships and start honoring God with her body. For religious Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the challenge of entering the kingdom was all about him needing to rethink, unlearn, start to learn all over again and become like a little baby. And the challenge to us today each one of us in this room, is what is the challenge of being a citizen in God's kingdom mean for you? It's a question I've often asked myself. What has to change in our lives? Can I ask you, how do you picture Jesus when you read the Gospels? Is he that pet pussycat or is he the Lion of Judah? Is he one with whom you feel safe and comfortable or is he one who calls you out of your comfort zones and mediocrity? Mr. Beaver, come back to him. He said to Susan, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you.
Guys, would you like to come back? Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. This was a hard passage this morning, wasn't it? If you thought it was hard, it was double hard for me. All right? But what's God saying to us today? There was a lot of stuff in there, wasn't there? If you read that on your own, you'd just sort of probably fast read it and get on to the next chapter. But what is the Lord saying to us? He's certainly talking to us about His kingdom. His kingdom. That was central in the teaching of Jesus. It was all about His kingdom. Jesus said very little actually about the life to come, eternal life, however you want to see that, because Jesus didn't say much about that at all, but He spoke an awful lot about the here and now. And that is our challenge today. How do we see Jesus? Do we see him as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or do we see him as the revolutionary, the radical? I see him as the latter. And depending on how you see Jesus, that will follow through into our lives, the way that we live for him. If you see Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the pet pussycat, then you'll be content coming on a Sunday morning, singing a few songs, listening to the guy at the front, or whatever. But if you see him as that radical revolutionary who has come to change the world, for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come, then quite honestly, it's going to change absolutely everything for you. What are those areas? What are those areas in my life? Is it the way that we view money? Is it the way that we use our bodies? Take that whichever way you want it. What is it? But he never takes from us without giving back. As I say, he's already given us back so, so much, more than we could ever repay. And we've been celebrating that this morning. When Jesus died on the cross, it was for us that he died. But it's more. There are many people who paid the greatest price, the greatest cost. What does our Christianity mean to us? Is it that equivalent of a cup of Horlicks, that cozy, nice feeling on a cold winter's night? What is the Lord calling us into? Let's just pray, shall we? The guys here will lead us in a song in a moment, which is, a, I believe, a suitable response to what we've been looking at today. But I think that we've got to make our own personal response. What is to change? Yes, His grace is free. But He has better for us. Dear Lord, you know our hearts. And today, Lord, we are probably sat in our seats 
just struggling perhaps with some of these concepts that you are dealing with us, that your spirit is just touching in our lives just now. And I just pray, Lord, that we will not make some emotional response to you half-heartedly, not really meaning it, but we're in church and therefore it seems the right thing to do. But I pray, Lord, that you will show us. You will not only put your finger on things in our lives perhaps that need changing. You will also, Lord, give us hope and your grace and your spirit to empower us to win the, the victories and to be your people, your men and women in this world. For your honor, Lord, and for your glory. Amen.